Welcome to Making Coffee, a behind-the-scenes look at what goes into making one of the world's favorite beverages. I'm your host, Lucia Solis, a former winemaker turned coffee processing specialist. Thanks for joining this week's episode. Hello, my friends. Welcome to episode 25. It feels really good to be back with the first episode of the second season. It's really hard to believe that it's been a whole year already, and I want to thank you for listening and for writing in and for caring about science. This last year of making this podcast has been a really valuable experience, and I'm blown away by all of your support. So I took a really nice break the month of September, and I got so many ideas and just ideas for topics, ideas for people I want to interview. So I'm just really excited and pumped to be back with you today. All right. If you were with me last season, you'll remember that we explored in depth the role of microbes to create flavor. So not just flavor, but also acidity and body. And that was in episode 15. For the visually inclined, there is a transcript of that episode with pictures, illustrations, and diagrams. It was an episode where we follow the journey of a glucose molecule to a flavor molecule and count carbons along the way, which can be really tough to follow verbally. So in the transcript, uh, I have a lot of drawings including hydrolysis and glycolysis and pyruvate, so you can have a better idea of what we're talking about when we talk about flavor. So this PDF is available for download for Patreon members, and I'll have a link in the show notes. You can also find downloads of the scientific papers that I've talked about in past episodes and the one that I'm going to talk about today so that you can read or quote the original work yourselves. Okay, let's get started. Today we're going to talk about coffee growing in non-traditional zones and how yeast travel. By listening to previous episodes, I hope you've gotten a better understanding of why the yeast and the fermentation are so important and how the microbes contribute to cup quality. But have you ever wondered where the yeast come from? Like where they are from originally? Have you ever wondered how they move or how far they can travel? Back in late 2014, early 2015, I went to visit a coffee farm in an unlikely country, the United States. The United States is more known for consuming coffee than producing it, and yet there are two states that grow coffee. I think many are familiar with coffee farms in Hawaii, but coffee also grows in another state. In the early 2000s, Southern California became a new home for the coffee tree. Southern California is not a traditional coffee-growing region. The traditional regions are held within what is called the coffee belt. 23.5 degrees north of the equator, the Tropic of Cancer, and 23.5 degrees south of the equator, which is known as the Tropic of Capricorn. This is where the conditions for coffee growing are optimal. Outside of this belt, it starts to get cooler, the day length changes more dramatically, and there are many other factors that make it harder to grow coffee outside of this area. If you're geographically challenged like me, and used to working in Central America, then coffee from Kona could seem quite north, Um, And and perhaps that it's outside of the zone. And that's what I thought for a while. I thought that Kona was pretty far north and kind of in the upper limit of that range. But I was completely wrong. Hawaii is located at 19 degrees north, which is well within the coffee belt. It's about the same latitude as Oaxaca, which is one of my other favorite coffee growing regions. So Hawaii is found at 19 degrees north, but the new coffee trees are in California. And that's definitely more north. These are the foothills of Santa Barbara. And Santa Barbara is outside of the traditional zone. It's located at 34.4 degrees north of the equator, a fact that is proudly displayed on the front page of the Fringe Coffee website, 
previously known as Goodland Organics. This 11 degree difference may seem small, but 23 degrees north of the equator is in central Mexico between the Mexican states Zacatecas and Durango. This 11 degree difference in latitude translates to 1300 miles. Santa Barbara is 1300 miles outside of where the world has traditionally grown coffee. 1300 miles is a lot, but the microclimate in Santa Barbara and the skills of professional exotic fruit growers like Jay Rusky make it possible. Jay is an agronomist, so he's not just lucky, he's also very good. What Jay has done in Southern California is remarkable. If you want to hear more about Jay and his California coffee farm, I'm going to include a link in the show notes for an interview he did on the coffee podcast with Jesse. Jay saw an opportunity for coffee to be grown under the shade of avocado trees in Southern California. Avocados require a lot of water, and California is a place where water has been getting scarce for decades. Additionally, avocado farmers in California were facing a lot of pressure from the low cost of Mexican avocados. So due to several factors, many avocado farmers were looking to diversify, and Jay had an option ready for them. Clearly, Jay is an innovative thinker. And that's why I thought he was interested in using different yeast to ferment his coffee. Santa Barbara is also a wine-growing region. This is a rare place where quality wine grapes and quality coffee cherries are grown in the same region. Usually, these two crops are separated by many, many countries. When I try to explain the difference between where coffee and wine grow, I use the mental visual of the belt going around the Earth's equator, where coffee is mostly grown inside of that belt, and then optimal wine-growing regions would be above and below that belt. So, for example, two excellent wine-growing regions on opposite sides of the belt are Bordeaux, France, with a latitude of 44 degrees north, and the world-famous Sauvignon Blancs from Marlborough, New Zealand, are grown at 41 degrees south. So, Coffees like moderate tropical weather, but grapes need the season changes. They need the dramatic winter cold to go dormant and rest, and then the spring to wake them up for their new growth, and then the hot summer to help the fruit ripen, and then fall is a time for harvesting. So that seasonality, the, the very distinct uh, phases, is very important for quality quality wine grapes. But coffee needs more of that temperate temperate climate. And I used to think that where wine grew well, like France or Italy, would not be good places to grow coffee. And conversely, where coffee grows really well, like Guatemala, would not be a good place to grow wine grapes. And to clarify, latitude is not the only important factor for quality. For example, where I live in Cleveland, Ohio, is about the same latitude as France. And yes, Ohio grows wine grapes and Ohio makes wine, and some of it is pretty okay. But the grapes grown in Ohio are not the same quality of those in France, even though latitude is the same. So we can grow grapes and coffee trees outside of their traditional designated areas, but just because they can grow doesn't mean that the quality will automatically be good. But Jay is challenging this by showing that not only can coffee be grown outside of the traditional areas, but that it can overlap with good wine-growing regions. And as part of this innovative thinking, I thought he was interested in matching yeast strains to coffee cultivars like many wineries do. Wineries don't use a single yeast for all of their wines. They have a specific strain for their Chardonnay, and a different strain for their Syrah, and a different yeast strain for Pinot Noir. It's kind of like having a different hat for different weather. 
For example, on a cold fall day, you might want a beanie. If it's raining, you might want a hood. And if it's a hot sunny day, you might grab a baseball cap to keep the sun out of your eyes. Each hat covers your head, but they serve a different function depending on your needs. The fermentation needs of Chardonnay are very different from the needs of Syrah. And yeast are kind of like those hats. They all ferment the wine, but each has a unique way of accomplishing the job. Just like you wouldn't wear a beanie in 100 degree weather and expect it to keep the sun out of your eyes, a winemaker can go to their so-called yeast closet and pick out the right yeast for the job. I think it's common to think of yeast as a monolith. Like it's one thing, one yeast. Even our word yeast is implies like a singularity, like a, a giant body. But it's not a giant singular body, it's a giant category. Yeast, and specifically Saccharomyces cerevisiae, are easy to grow and manipulate in the laboratory. And for this reason, they are a model organism, meaning that scientists don't just study Saccharomyces itself, but they use it as a model to study other things. So currently, there are 9,000 different laboratory strains of Saccharomyces cerevisiae. I wanted to come up with a, an analogy about fruit varieties. And so when I tried to think about the fruit that has the most varieties, the only one I could think of was apples. Living in Ohio, I've seen a lot more varieties of apples than when I lived in California. The grocery store in California usually had Fuji, Gala, and Granny Smith. That was about the extent of like my apple education. Then I came to Ohio, and the grocery stores here have Honeycrisp and Cameo and Crispin and Macintosh and Red Delicious and Jersey Mac and Empire and Golden Delicious, and at last count, it's been 24 different varieties of apples. So then, out of curiosity, I googled, what is the fruit with the most varieties? And the internet came back with 7,500 varieties of apples, though to be fair, the vast majority are not commercially available. But still, that's a huge amount of diversity. And yet, there are still more strains of Saccharomyces cerevisiae alone. And what also blows my mind is that those are just the strains available to scientists, which means in nature, there are even more that have not yet been identified and collected and cataloged by a lab. So we've got this incredible diversity of strains that are available, again, to science, well, in nature, and then a few of less of those available to science and then fewer of those available to to winemakers available commercially. So as a winemaker, we had about 100 different strains to choose from. And by commercially, I mean that you could go buy a packet off of a shelf and use it for your fermentation. And that's a lot of choice. And it's for this reason that the wine industry, there's been a lot of effort to match the yeast strain and varieties. So like I mentioned, a winemaker would choose a different yeast if she was fermenting Chardonnay than if she was fermenting Zinfandel. But even two winemakers fermenting Chardonnay would choose different strains if one was fermenting Chardonnay in California versus Chardonnay in New Zealand. And even two winemakers side by side in California would choose different yeast for Chardonnay if one was looking for a citrus fruit forward style and someone else was looking to make sweet, sweet cougar juice. So the effort to match yeast strain and variety is very well defined in winemaking. In coffee, I'm really not even sure who's making this effort. I don't, I don't know of any studies yet that have tried to define this. So this is an area that is very ripe for coffee research. But anyway, let me get back to coffee farms in Southern California. So Jay grows many different varieties on his farm. 
From the French website, I counted 13 different varieties in the latest bags of coffee he was selling. So at the bare minimum, at the very least, he grows 13 different varieties, but I'm sure he's experimenting and growing many, many others. The ones that I found on the website are Catura Rojo, Geisha, Puerto Rico, Cucateco, Laurina, Mundo Novo, Pacamara, Pacas, Bourbon, Tipica, Catisic, Catuay Rojo, and Catura Amarillo. Back during my first visits, I thought maybe he would want to match each variety with its own strain, but when I got there, that wasn't quite what was needed. When I arrived during the 2014-2015 harvest at Goodland, I expected there to be bubbling coffee fermentations everywhere. Instead, what I found when I got there is that the fermentations were really quiet, like an eerie kind of quiet. And slow and silent is not usually a good sign. When I would visit similar warm climates, like the climates of El Salvador or Costa Rica, a fermentation can take off within hours. And by take off, I mean that a fermentation can begin and accelerate quickly, and I also mean that it can take off the sticky mucilage from the seed very, very quickly. For example, on a hot, sunny day on some coffee mills, I have felt coffee lose its mucilage in six hours of vigorous fermentation. But the fermentations at Goodland were taking days. They were just slowly plugging along. At first, I thought maybe some of them could have been stuck, and having a stuck fermentation is very common in winemaking, but I had never seen it in coffee before, and honestly, I haven't seen it since in any other low-elevation mills that I have visited. A stuck fermentation happens in wine when the yeast poop out for some reason or another, and they just can't finish their fermentation. The role of yeast is to turn sugar in grape juice into alcohol. But sometimes they get stuck and only turn like two-thirds of the sugar into alcohol. And this is a huge problem because now what you're left with is a low-alcohol wine with a lot of sugar, and this is a very unstable situation. When winemakers get stuck fermentations, which actually is a lot more common than most of us would like to admit, it can be pretty expensive to try to restart it or to figure out a way to get that wine to be stable or blended away there's it's it's a pretty big problem to figure out what to do with that wine if you can't restart that fermentation so even though the role of yeast in coffee fermentations is very different from the role of yeast in wine fermentations where you don't really need them to kind of finish the fermentation for alcohol production so a stuck fermentation is a little less of uh, of an issue in coffee the principle still holds and sometimes we can think of yeast as very robust, and some of them can be, but not all of the strains are, and some can be more delicate than others. And if the one that we want to finish this fermentation, because there's a certain flavor profile that this particular yeast has given us, then we must be gentle and be careful and, and take, a, take care of our yeast, because otherwise, when you're too rough or you take them for granted, they can abandon the fermentation and we won't get the desired outcome. However, conditions at Goodland were really good. This didn't look like a traditional stuck fermentation to me. The ambient temperatures and the tank temperatures at Goodland were similar to other coffee farms I had visited, but they just didn't have the same vigorous activity. They were almost like ghost fermentations. The only time I had seen fermentations that looked this slow and took this long is when I visited a farm at a very high elevation. So 
when you have these very cold locations tucked in between mountains and hidden by a lot of trees where they just receive very little direct light so it's cooler and there's also a lot of cloud cover cloud cover and tree cover then it's in these locations where fermentations can take a really long time can take days to remove the mucilage but Jay's farm was hot, it was sunny, it was a low-elevation farm, but strangely, his fermentations were acting like they were on the top of a very cold, shaded mountain. And because I predominantly work in Central and South America in warm climates, rarely do I want to speed up a reaction. For maximum flavor development and retention, I try to slow down the existing fermentation as much as possible. What I try to do with my clients in Central America is to help them extend the fermentation from 12 hours to 36 hours to retain flavor. If a fermentation is too fast and too hot, you can risk volatilizing the aromatics. The air above the tank smells good, but the compounds are not able to get into the seed. Fermenting tanks that smell really good are generally a positive sign. However, sometimes if a tank is too fragrant, it's a sign that the fermentation is too fast and that the flavor compounds are flying away into the air instead of dissolving into the seed. So one thing I try to remind my clients is everything that you're smelling is aroma that's not staying with the coffee. So there can be a little bit of a trade-off there. You want, like, your tank smelling good is a positive sign and you definitely want to encourage that. But again, being able to modulate that and pull back a little bit if it is too vigorous and smells too strongly and starts going too fast, then you can very quickly go in the opposite direction. So slow fermentations are generally the goal for specialty coffee. So slow and low temperature make a good combination for flavor generation, but also flavor retention. And I think a lot of the times we can forget about the flavor retention part, like we're just so focused on making the compounds. Uh, but again, if we do that too quickly, too vigorously, and at the wrong temperature, then we're making all of these compounds, but they're not actually getting into the coffee. A slow fermentation is usually a good thing. Well, unless you don't have enough space, and sometimes that can happen too. Often producers can't do extended fermentations because the next day's fruit is ready to be picked and it needs a home, it needs a tank. And long fermentations create a bottleneck at the mill. So for example, fruit arrives every day, every 24 hours, so most fermentations need to be about half as long. Fermentations are 12 hours because they really needed to be 12 hours because they needed enough time to empty the tank, move the coffee, be ready to pulp, and then feed into feed the new coffee into that very same tank. So it's not a style choice as much as uh, a necessity for fermentations to be short enough to be able to use that tank you know, once a day throughout the season. And this has worked for hundreds of years. This has been the way that coffee was processed, where the reward was for volume. How quickly can you process it? So 12 hours was was perfect, was a, a really good amount of time for a fermentation to be able to remove the mucilage and then go on to drying and for the producer to, again, have that, that turnover time. However, now in specialty, the, the reward is no longer volume. The reward for producers is flavor development and having a, a unique flavor that is associated with a particular um, farm or a region. And in that sense, you need these extended fermentations to be able to develop that complexity of flavor. And I've found in my work that, you know, 36 to 48 hours is is a, is a pretty good spot. So 
what are producers supposed to do? Um, they basically have two options. One option is they either build more tanks, which is easier said than done in places where materials and extra labor can be scarce. Or one thing you can do is talk with your crew and change the picking schedule, which if you listen to the episodes about picking ripe cherries, um, episodes 16 and 17, the politics of picking is very, very complicated. And most pickers only get paid when they turn in coffee. So there's an incentive in the system to bring coffee every day because the sums are so small that many need these daily earnings to, to survive. So if they picked coffee half as often, they would also earn half as much. And maybe you'd think, well, no, they could just pick twice as much coffee on the days that they do pick. But this is absolute nonsense because picking coffee is a physically demanding job. It's very difficult. And pickers are already working as quickly as they can because they are paid on volume. They're already picking as much as they can. And pickers can only pick as long as the sun is up. So there's a limited window when pickers are able to to harvest coffee. So in contrast, for example, I usually work, you know, a traditional, you know, nine to five. But if I'm behind on a project, I can stay a few extra hours at work and finish my project. I can do overtime. I can catch up. You know, many of us do have the luxury of overtime. And so we think that there is that this analogy can be extended to farm work. But it's really difficult because coffee pickers can't do overtime because near the equator, the sun goes down at 6 p.m. And if there's no sunlight, then there's no picking. Not only is it so foreign for most of us to be limited in our work by by sunlight, by daylight. But for example, where I live in Cleveland, Ohio, I'm much I'm a lot further north. And so in the summertime, we have days where the sun doesn't set until 10 p.m. So that's four more hours of daylight up north that's not available in the coffee belt. But even then, if I needed to continue to do my work or have anything, you know, anything pressing that needed to get done, I can turn on lights, but there's just not that opportunity on coffee farms to light up uh, an entire forest, at least at this point. I'll tell you what though, winemaking has figured it out. In winemaking, in when I worked at Opus, picking usually started when the sun rose, right? So six in the morning, something like that, uh, you could start to pick grapes. However, because temperature is really important in winemaking, the wineries that had a lot of a lot of money would invest in these lights that were almost like like bright lights to to light up a, like a football stadium, and the picking would start at three in the morning so that you could take advantage of the the really cool temperatures and some of that darkness and then get the grapes to the winery as soon as possible. Um, but this is so extra to be able to light up an entire field, which again winemakers do all the time, and it would be completely absurd to to do in coffee. Anyway, my main point is that figuring out how to slow down the inflow of coffee while not simultaneously screwing over your entire workforce is really tricky. And figuring out how to slow down fermentations without creating this bottleneck at the mill is one of the first things that I try to figure out when I get to a site. However, again, this was not the problem at Goodland. Goodland was already slow, and they were so small at this point that it really wasn't a bottleneck for them. So they could have really long fermentations, uh, they just didn't really want to. And initially, I really wasn't sure how I would be able to help them. But the interesting part about Goodland is that the fermentations were slow, 
but not necessarily better for it. The coffee wasn't bad, it just wasn't meeting quality expectations, at least in the early days. The fruit was being grown with a lot of care and resources, but the work in the field wasn't translating to the cup. It wasn't being reflected in the flavors of the brewed coffee. So something between growing the coffee and roasting was missing, and that something was processing. So how the seed was getting out of the skin was the missing piece. It was the, the, the weakest link. And you might also think that roasting was a factor. And yeah, a bad roast can absolutely ruin good work done in the field. And it is also true that coffee growers are not usually trained coffee roasters. But in this case, we weren't in the remote mountains of Peru. We were in Southern California, and there's a lot of skilled roasters around. So I do not believe that that was a limiting factor. So what in the world was going on? Why were the fermentations so slow despite healthy, nutrient-dense fruit and ideal temperature conditions? Why were these hot, low-elevation fermentations acting like they were on the top of a mountain, freezing cold? Well, this would be odd behavior, unless you knew something about microbiology. Jay's exotic fruit business is very successful. I visited a few times, and every time I looked forward to tasting all of his exotic fruit, the cherimoyas, the dragon fruit, and especially the finger limes. This man knows how to grow delicious fruit. But this was precisely the catch. His business to that point had been growing excellent fruit and selling whole fruit. But the coffee venture was different. He didn't want to sell whole coffee cherries. He wanted to process the cherries and sell roasted coffee. For this, he needed a fermentation. He needed something that he had not needed before. He needed yeast. And because there was no history of fermentation in this facility, his processing location was really clean, and one could almost call it sterile from the perspective of fermenting coffee. And because it was a new planting, and because the plants were young, the ideal microbes had not yet arrived. Wait. Lucia, what do you mean the yeast hadn't arrived? Didn't you tell us that yeast are everywhere? Didn't you tell us that yeast are already in the environment all of the time? Yes, both things are true. Of course, yeast are already everywhere. They are in the soil and they're on the skin of other fruits and they are carried by birds and insects. Um, but it can take a while to build a critical mass. It can take a while for all of these native and local yeasts to get into a high enough concentration so that they can ferment the coffee. So clearly he did have yeast on his farm. He was able to ferment his coffee, but very slowly, too slowly, and without the concentration of flavor that was found in other coffee-growing regions. And this just takes time. So until he could build up a large enough concentration of local yeast, I brought some with me. I left Goodland and really didn't think about this experience again for another three years until I met Dr. Amy Dudley. Okay, are you still with me so far? My ultimate goal is clarity and sharing information in a way that is accessible. For many people, accessibility has a lot to do with length. They prefer to get bite-sized bits of information. And I had originally imagined the podcast to be 20 minutes uh, like 20 to 25 minute episodes and really trying to stick to a single subject. And the early episodes are much shorter, but as the year progressed, you may have noticed they've gotten longer. Originally, I was going to split today's episode into two parts, but I wasn't sure, so I asked the patrons what they preferred. 
The patrons are a group of people who value information and they make a monthly pledge to support me and help me make new episodes and I take their input very seriously into how we're going to shape this podcast moving forward. So I asked them, I asked the patrons if they would prefer, you know, more episodes but with uh, a shorter shorter length kind of focusing on a single topic or if they preferred these denser, longer episodes. And the patrons surprised me by overwhelmingly voting for the longer, more dense episodes. So here's a little bit of a compromise. If you want to keep it short and light, this is a good spot for an intermission. Pause, stretch your legs, and maybe come back next week. But if you want to see how we're going to connect new coffee-growing origins with the origins of yeast, buckle up for one of my favorite research papers in this space. Okay. Back to Dr. Dudley, who helped me understand where Jay's yeast had gone. I met Dr. Amy Dudley in 2017 in Seattle when we were on a RICO panel together talking about yeast. I was offering the perspective of practical application of yeast, meaning how coffee producers in situ could use it, and Dr. Dudley was presenting her research on yeast genetics. She runs a lab at the Pacific Northwest Research Institute, and she is an expert on yeast genetics. The previous year, 2016, her lab published an interesting research paper titled Independent Origins of Yeast Associated with Coffee and Cacao Fermentation. The entire research paper is available for download in the Patreon members area. The question her lab was asking is essentially, where did the yeast in coffee and cacao fermentations come from? How did the yeast that ferments coffee and cacao end up there? This could be a confusing question because we've talked a lot on this podcast about how yeast live on the skin of fruits, they already exist in nature, and they are everywhere. But what Amy Dudley and her team wanted to know was where did the yeast that is found everywhere now, where did those yeast originally come from? Coffee grows in Colombia and has for many generations, but it did not always grow there. We can trace the origins of a coffee variety grown in Colombia back to the heirloom varieties from Ethiopia. And we're not just talking about the origin of different varieties, but people are also applying it to themselves. Now, many people are looking into their own genetics. For example, maybe your family has been in a certain town or country for three or four or five generations. But what about 10 generations back? Where did your ancestors come from? The Dudley Lab was asking these types of questions and wanted to map the genetics of coffee and cacao yeasts. Coffee and cacao have similar growing regions. In many countries like Guatemala, they are grown quite close together. The way that Dudley Lab was going to map the yeast was to test coffee and cacao samples from all over the world. They asked a few questions. The first is, how similar are coffee yeast and cacao yeast to each other when they're found in the same country? And the second question was, how similar are the yeast between the same crop, for example, coffee, but when it's grown in different countries. For example, let's use the human example of me and my brother. When we graduated college, we briefly lived in the same city, but in separate houses. We were physically close together and we will have similar genetics because we are related. But our genetics will be different from our neighbors because even though we live physically close to many people, even though we're in proximity, we are not genetically related. In the case of coffee and cacao that grew close together, the researchers wanted to see if the yeast found on coffee from Guatemala was similar to the yeast found on cacao from Guatemala. 
Back to the example of me and my brother, who were both also born in Guatemala, but now live in different places. He lives in California, and I live 2,000 miles away in Ohio. But if you test our DNA, it will still say we are related. We are related independent of location. If we live in the same house, or if we're on opposite sides of the planet, our DNA will say that we are related because it's inherent to who we are. Our DNA doesn't change when we move to a new place. The researchers wanted to see if coffee and cacao yeast were specific and unique to the crop, like me and my brother, or if the yeast depended on the location. If the samples from all over the world showed that they were genetically similar to each other, it would mean that it was crop-specific. For example, just like my brother and I can travel to different places but still maintain our DNA. Perhaps there was a way that the coffee or cacao crop itself carried the needed microbes with it, like bringing its own luggage. The other option is that the samples would show that they are genetically different and they would cluster together by region, that they would be specific to a physical location, that they would be specific to geography. The researchers got samples from 13 different countries in Central America, South America, Africa, Indonesia, and the Middle East. They found 78 strains for cacao and 67 yeast strains for coffee. First, they found that between the two different crops, coffee and cacao, the strains were actually crop-specific. They had an ecological niche, meaning that it was rare that a yeast found on cacao was also found on coffee, and vice versa. So even though both coffee and cacao grow in the same place, like Guatemala, the yeast found on coffee likes to stick to coffee, and the yeast found on cacao likes to stick to cacao, even though they are physically close together in the same country. Even though they're physically close together, the yeast really don't travel between crops on their own. However, when they examined the individual crop, for example, only looking at coffee samples, they did not find that the yeast was coffee-specific within coffee samples from all over the world. When it came to the 67 yeast strains of coffee they found, the strains were very diverse, meaning it was not crop-specific, not coffee-specific, but a function of location. They found that the samples clustered around geographic niches. All the coffee samples from Indonesia were genetically similar to the other coffee samples from Indonesia. All the samples from Mexico were genetically similar to all of the samples from Mexico. But the coffee samples from Mexico and Indonesia were very different from each other, even though they were both coffee samples. If the yeast were crop-specific to the coffee in Mexico, it would be similar to the Indonesian samples because they were both coffee samples and it wouldn't matter where they came from. Remember the example of me and my brother, we would be genetically similar no matter where in the world we are. So... Between coffee as a group and cacao as a group, the yeast have an ecological niche. They are crop specific. But within the coffee group or within the cacao group, the yeast strains have found a geographic niche. In fact, the researchers found that if they had a new blind sample, they could test the yeast and tell you with very high accuracy the country that it came from just by being able to test the yeast on the surface. They didn't need to know the variety, they didn't examine the green coffee, they didn't even need to taste it and do any sensory analysis. Think about that. They didn't even taste the coffee. So none of this involves a sensory component. Just by looking at the genetics of the yeast on the outside of the coffee, they could tell you what country it came from with really high accuracy.
And what this means is that there is a yeast signature. Yeasts are like a painter or a sculptor who sign their work before they release it out into the world. And remember, they're not testing the genetics of the seed itself. They're not looking inside the coffee. They're not testing the DNA of the coffee. They're testing the DNA of the yeast that's on the outside of the coffee. And in this case, the example of me and my brother is not a perfect example because in that case, we are genetically similar on the inside. What the researchers were doing is looking at the genetics of the residue of the yeast on the outside of the seeds. So a better example would be like being able to say that my brother and I are related to each other because they analyzed the cotton threads on our clothing. I hope you'll forgive my not perfect example and I hope it didn't make it more confusing. I tend to over-anthropomorphize yeast, and sometimes I take an analogy to its furthest possible conclusion. But anyway, this is what the researchers were curious about. And now, those two questions that the researchers were interested. So the first question is, are coffee and cacao yeast related to each other? And the second one is, are they related uh, you know, within different, different origins? Those two questions bring us to several points of discussion. The first important point is that we found now that the yeast are not crop-specific to coffee. But if you've listened to other episodes of this podcast, we kind of already knew this. We know that we can use wine or beer or bread yeast to ferment coffee. If it was crop-specific, maybe coffee would only ferment with yeast that are matched to coffee. And this doesn't just apply to yeast. Uh, you've seen some people that can use different types of bacteria. Some people are using milk or yogurt, the lactic bacteria found in those products to ferment coffee as well. So another way to think about this is kind of like bees. Bees aren't very picky. They land on many different flowers and get nectar from wherever they can, and they end up pollinating many plants. In contrast to bees, there are some beetles that stick strictly to pollinating magnolias. So maybe you show a beetle a sunflower saturated with pollen, but he's not interested. He's only looking for the magnolia flowers. So you can think of yeast like bees in this respect. They are highly adaptable and cross between different plants. They are not crop specific. Next, I want to share with you a quote from the, directly from the research paper. The researchers say, The populations associated with today's fermentations are different from the yeast found in the regions where the plant originated. This sounds like a simple sentence, but the implications for how we operate in the specialty coffee sector are huge. Okay, let's break down this statement. Let's look at what we know. Coffee trees originated in Ethiopia. What that statement says is that the yeast that ferment coffee in Ethiopia is very different from the yeast that ferment coffee in Colombia. And we probably guessed that this was true, but it was just nice that this team has done the research to finally prove it. We also know that the cacao tree is native to the Amazon basin. Thanks to the research, we also know that the yeast that ferments cacao in Colombia is different from the yeast that ferment cacao in Africa. Since coffee and cacao switched locations, meaning coffee trees originated in Africa, but today more coffee grows outside of Africa, and cacao originated in the Americas, but more cacao is grown in Africa, both of these, of these um, crops undergo a fermentation, it would be reasonable to assume that similar yeasts are doing the fermentations. But what this research shows is that they're not. The plants switched continents, but the original yeast were left behind. 
When seeds and plants were taken to a new location, the original yeast did not follow. Or if it did follow, it was soon outcompeted by a local yeast. The coffee plant and the cacao plant are like orphans, whose yeast parents have been taken away and they have to adapt to new step parents, to new step yeast parents in whatever new location they find themselves in. The second important point to come out of this research paper is that today's coffee is not matched to the original microbes it grew up with. The moment coffee was taken from Ethiopia and planted in a new location, any new location, it had already lost an important part of its essence. I'm not saying that this is a good or bad thing. It's just a fact. I'm not saying that we need to restore the original microbes or that coffee would be better if the original microbes could always travel with it. It's just a fact that when it's taken from one location to a new one, the microbes do not come with it, and the microbes found in the new place take over the job of fermentation. And this also explains why when a plant is moved to a new location, like California, the yeast available for fermentation take a while to arise independently. They are already in the new location, but they take a while to get to the high numbers, the high concentration needed for coffee fermentation. The new plantings couldn't bring their own yeast, and the new location wasn't ready yet for a large number required for a spontaneous fermentation. The third fascinating point from this paper is that the researchers found that each country has a signature. Regardless of processing style, because they looked at both wet and dry processing samples, regardless of that, the samples were genetically similar. The yeast on the samples was genetically similar. And regardless of variety, so Katura versus Typica versus Agacia, the yeast on the samples was genetically similar. Regardless of how neglected one farm was or how well managed it was, yes, there are many factors that go into determining the flavor of coffee, but very few of them are able to survive and be tested in a lab in this manner. I interpret this to mean that the microbes that process coffee are very important to its terroir. And for one quick minute, we must talk about terroir again. I hope from the previous episodes that you've been able to start to unravel this ball of yarn, that terroir is not a physical thing that you can point to the way many people wish it was, the way many people talk about it as being just uh, the soil or sort of the place where a certain product comes from. But terroir is a concept. And that concept covers two main points, geographic phenotype and a sensorial signature. So phenotype is when the genotype interacts with the environment. I made three episodes about terroir trying to convince you that it's an unhelpful concept that helps sell coffee, but ultimately hurts producers more than it helps. It's a marketing tool used to make more money, but it's rarely if ever the producers who profit from their own reputation. I hope by now my position is very clear. However, I still talk about it because it's a concept that many people still refuse to give up. And if I can't convince you that terroir is nonsense using ethics, maybe I can try to convince you from the side of science. I hope by now you are at least convinced that terroir is not just about soil and climate, but that there is also a microbial and human element to terroir. We can identify that each country has a sensorial signature, that coffee from Ethiopia has a sensory signature that's different from coffee from Mexico, Right, I think we're all on board there, that coffee from different places tastes differently, and it can taste uniquely like a particular place. So these are all things that we have felt instinctively, or that we have felt through experience. But what's new is that there is now research to back it up. 
And if the research has proven that sensorial signatures are largely due to the phenotype, for example, how a particular variety like a Keturah interacts with its environment, and that Keturah's processing, like a dry or a wet fermentation, that, that it leaves a microbial signature, then if we put together those two things, the phenotype and the microbial signature, and we know that the microbial signature can be used to map and trace a coffee back to its geographical origin, then what you are proving, or what science is able to prove now, is that this idea of terroir, this concept of a place, is not something that is ethereal or magical or romantic. It's something that can be identified in a laboratory. And if we can identify it, if we can isolate it, then we can move it. We can take microbes from one place and put them somewhere else and get similar results. And now what this means is that terroir is movable. If we can move the genotype, meaning if we can get new plant varieties in new locations, and we can move the microbes that provide that sensorial signature, then that means terroir is not fixed in a physical location. Again, it can be moved. And if terroir is not fixed in a physical location, if it can be moved to a different location, then does it actually exist? How do you have a sense of place if that place can move? If that place can be found in many different places, if that place is not one singular unique point in the universe, but can be replicated. I think this is an important point, but it's not even the most important point in this paper. This paper is incredibly rich, and I really encourage all of you to read it yourself because there's so much in here that I didn't even get to mention. But I can't end this episode, I can't wrap it up yet before we talk about another point that the paper makes. And it says that while the samples are geographically similar to each other and different from other countries, these differences are not random. They did not find random or novel strains. The strains of yeast that were found in all of these samples are related to three known yeast populations. So what the researchers are saying is that there was a pattern. The pattern of how these yeasts are located in coffee and cacao follows very closely to human migration patterns. The yeast found in Central and South America are more genetically similar to the yeast found in North America. The yeast found in African samples were more similar to the European and Asian populations of yeast. The researchers were able to use the yeast populations to track our human migration patterns. So while coffee trees originated in Ethiopia and were brought to plantations in Central America, the microbes found in the fermentation were brought by people from North America. What this shows is that the microbes move with people more than they move with plants, at least in the case of coffee and cacao. Human activity has influenced the global distribution of microorganisms. The reason that I think that this point is really the most important point of the paper is because I get so much resistance. I personally get a lot of pushback from coffee purists who do not like the idea of introducing new yeast to coffee fermentations. But this has been the history of coffee from the beginning. Human activity has driven the migration and the mingling of previously isolated species. Humans have moved species beyond their natural ranges for thousands of years, both intentionally for agricultural purposes and then unintentionally as a consequence of human migration. So if you're okay with coffee growing outside of Ethiopia, I think you should also be okay with new yeast fermenting coffee. If you think it's cool to grow coffee in California, you should also think it's cool that a producer in Colombia is using a non-local yeast to ferment their non-native coffee. 
I hope this helps you challenge people when they say that producers shouldn't be experimenting with new yeasts, that fermentation should be native. Well, I think that depends on how far back you want to go, but sorry to break it to the coffee purists, there are no native coffee fermentations outside of Ethiopia. All the coffee all over the world was fermented with new yeasts. What we have now are local fermentations, but none of them are original to coffee plants. The new model that I want you to have when you think about coffee plants is a coffee plant is brought naked and it must wear the local clothes. The local clothes are the yeast and the bacteria that are brought in by people. People moved these yeasts there in the first place. These are not yeasts that are necessarily native to those locations, but more these are yeasts that move with human populations. As humans move into different spaces, as they have communities, we are bringing the yeasts ourselves. And so bringing in a, you know, a yeast in your backpack as you're traveling to a new place really isn't that different from how it was originally you know, transferred. Before it would just travel you know, in our animals and our clothing, so it was a much slower process, but it's a very similar concept. So I know a lot of people who are demonizing these yeast coming in in uh, you know, a plastic package, and to the uninformed, uneducated person, this does seem really different, but now you guys know better. Uh, science knows better. Researchers knows better that this is how yeast move. This is how yeast get to new locations, and this has always been how they move. Now we're just able to do it a lot more quickly. I think that Dr. Dudley's work is really important in coffee, and this paper in particular has, like I said, a lot of really good points, and I don't think that this is the last time that I'm going to be talking about it because there's there's so much more we can talk about it. But if you'd like to read a copy yourself, you can download a copy of this research paper by joining Patreon. You can go to patreon.com slash coffee. It's thanks to the Patreons that I'm able to carve out this time every week to make these episodes and to make them available for free to everybody else. If you see coffee in a different way after listening to these episodes, consider joining the small group and helping me make more episodes. If you enjoy listening and get value, please share with a friend who loves wine or coffee or cacao. If you want to be notified when the next episode is coming out, consider subscribing to my free and infrequent newsletter at lucia.coffee. And Lucia is spelled L-U-X-I-A. Thanks for listening. And remember, life's too short to drink bad coffee.